Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. Today, a book review. In this episode, your hosts sit down with the Air University Law Chair, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gartland, and discuss The Kane Mutiny, the 1951 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Herman Walk. We'll discuss this monumental work of World War II historical fiction and extract its lessons for today on leadership, followership, and the nature of military command. Welcome to episode 56. Enjoy! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General Schools podcast. Today, Charlie and I are joined again by Lieutenant Colonel Gartland, and we're going to talk about the Kane Mutiny. We're talking about the book, not the movie, the Pulitzer Prize winning book about World War II and Willie Keith, who is sent to be a lieutenant on the Kane, which is a minesweeper out in the Pacific. Uh, a little bit first about the author, Herman Walk. He was born in 1915 in the Bronx in New York. Uh, he's a Jewish family. He was at Columbia, and then he had to join the Naval Reserve after Pearl Harbor. And he was stationed in the Pacific on a minesweeper, and he was eventually an exec as an LT and XO. So this for him is somewhat autobiographical, although as we'll talk about later, the main character, Willie Keith, is definitely not an autobiographical character. He said about working on a minesweeper while being in the Navy, that he learned a lot about machinery, how men behave under pressure, and about Americans, which I thought was really interesting. He did actually write his first book on board while he was stationed on the minesweeper. And he died when he was 103 in 2019, only 10 days before his 104th birthday. So yeah, um, Colonel Gartland, tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, thanks, Aaron. So uh, th- this, this to me is really, uh, is really a work uh, of art. Uh, it's it's a bit ironic because one of the characters uh, in the novel they won't be my focus today, but uh, Lieutenant Kiefer, who is the the budding novelist who's who's setting out to write the great American novel, and interestingly in the book it's pointed out that there are a bunch of books coming out on World War II, and this was one of them, although this one didn't come out until 1951. That was the first printing, uh, and as Aaron said, uh, wound up winning the Pulitzer Prize, so obviously well-received. It is as much as a page-turner as one could be, in, in my personal opinion. It's a tremendous treatise on leadership, on military culture, and on a number of other themes uh, that we'll be that we'll be taking up today, and there are at least two movies now. The most famous one uh, with Humphrey Bogart, which on Rotten Tomatoes has a pretty high approval rating. I just <laughs> checked right before the podcast has ninety two percent. Wow! Uh, on it, uh, in my opinion, I think falls far far short of the caliber of the book itself, and that just might be because it is such a well written book that it's hard for the movie to capture a lot of the characterization and exchanges between the characters who are really so so well-developed, in my opinion. 
there's also another movie that came out with Jeff Daniels in it, and that's a way more recent one. I want to say early 2000s. I didn't really see much on that one. And that's actually focusing way more on the actual court-martial itself, uh, not on the entirety of, uh, of the story uh, as reflected in the book, where the court-martial is really the last, last part of the book, as we'll be talking about later today. Yeah, And also interesting, the court-martial is not a very large part of the book, and it's actually one of the more anticlimactic parts of the book. In yeah. my opinion, yeah, absolutely. It's really the it's really the lead up to it, where you get to know about these characters and see how they develop uh, over the over the course of the novel. Uh, it is almost, I I think, for a legal audience in particular, it might be a bit of a letdown compared to the <laughs> compared to the rest of the. I agree. I think we'll talk about the court martial a little bit, but I know as a jag, I was there's a whole section that just says the court martial, and I was like, yes, yeah. I want to know everything. How did you charge it? <laughs> what is your evidence? Uh, and then. As I went on to read it, it was only like 10 pages and it was fairly uh, – probably truer to real court than TV court uh, is. Great. Yeah. Great great point. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's uh, – and, and of course dealing with dealing with a code uh, that we're not familiar with because yep. the Navy had – this is prior to pre-UCMJ. Courts so and boards. Dealing with a specific uh, uh, Navy code. Uh, so yeah, for sure it's, it's really the buildup of the novel as we follow the protagonist, Willie Keith – and see the contrast and the two ship captains uh, mm-hmm. that that are chronicled in the book. Uh, we'll talk about them later, Captain DeVries and the infamous Captain Quig. So a little bit about the plot, since we know that not everybody has read this book, and we do advise reading this book. Spoilers ahead if you were hoping to read it yourself. But basically, The Cane Mutiny is about Willie Keith, who is... Kind of, I, don't know, I kind of thought he was a twerp, honestly, when I first started the book. He's a young man. He's in his 20s, and he is from a very uh, waspy New England family, and he's sort of swanning around New York City playing piano bars, uh, living on his parents' money, not really a lot of direction, kind of um, breaking the hearts of young Italian women all over the city. And he, because it's World War II, to avoid the army draft, he decides to go to the naval OTS in Manhattan. And he is uh, definitely not at the outset Navy material. He gets sent out to the West Coast to wait for an assignment. And he finds out he's going to be put on a minesweeper in the Pacific. He was not in a particularly impressive OTS grad. Barely made it. Uh, barely fact. made it. So it's not a huge surprise that the cane is sort of a rust bucket that is not actually even sweeping mines in the Pacific. It's just sort of out there waiting to be called upon and kind of doing escort duty for other ships, battleships that are actually going out to the mission. And while he is on board the cane, he runs into a cast of characters that really set his naval fate. I would say the the fate of his naval career. So... Willie himself, he is someone who, he is not an obvious leader choice. He's an interesting choice as the protagonist, I think, because he is definitely the kind of person who probably was drafted into World War II. And he's the kind of person where on the surface, he looked like he had no business actually being in the military, very undisciplined, very lazy. And then uh, I think you could almost call this book sort of a Bildungsroman, almost, I think, of like a young man who comes into his own to an extent. I don't think we can give Willie too much credit. Um, But I think he does kind of come into his own over the course of the book. uh, And he's very influenced by the other people that he's serving with on the minesweeper. And his naval experience even affects 
uh, his personal life. His personal life does play a big, pretty big role in the book. Um, he is on and off romance with a girl back at home in New York of a different social class. Uh, she's Italian and she's like the daughter of greengrocers in Brooklyn. And his father is a doctor in Connecticut. Uh, that does play a pretty big role in the book, but that's not really what we're going to focus on here today too, too much. So Colonel Gartland, tell us a little bit, we're going to start talking a little bit about some of the cast of characters that Willie works with while he's assigned to the cane. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about his leadership? Sure. So and that that's really one of the, the most interesting themes of the book uh, to me, because we get a contrast in two radically different approaches to leadership on this minesweeper. When Willie Keith uh, first comes aboard the DMS Kane, uh, he encounters a Captain DeVries, who's actually a lieutenant commander, captain of the ship, but lieutenant commander uh, by rank of the ship. And he doesn't have, of course, Willie's not really in a position to be judging people at this in very, very, very young but stage. That doesn't stop him. But that, <laughs> but, that, but that doesn't stop him. I think that, and that, and that's part of the maturation process. Think that we see of him throughout the book as as he starts to reflect back later on on Devries uh, because as most people on this ship who experienced Devries did reflect back on him once they had to experience uh, Captain Quig. But Willie shows up and he doesn't have a very, for what it's worth, he doesn't have a very favorable impression of DeVries for a couple of reasons. The ship is a bit of a mess. Uh, as Aaron said earlier, it's, it's a ship that is not in great shape. It hasn't really performed any actual mission duty. It's been steaming around all over the Pacific, uh, delivering mail, delivering notices, engaging uh, in training with other ships, but not really performing any duty. And so the ship's old, uh, it's not in great shape, and the personnel on the ship are in much the, the same state. They're, they're a bit disheveled, uh, don't really look crisp in their uniforms, and Keith, Keith attributes this to poor leadership, basically, on the part of Captain DeVries. Now, as we see, uh, and, and the book doesn't spend, relatively speaking, much time on DeVries compared to Quig, who winds up taking up the bulk of the bulk of the book. But we see that DeVries, notwithstanding some of the unimpressive appearances, really manages to get the mission accomplished. And you get a sense that DeVries knows what he's dealing with, both in terms of the ship and in terms of the personnel. He knows in terms of the personnel that he's received a lot of outcasts uh, and has to play the cards he's dealt. And they do uh, respect him uh, and they do respond to him. And same with the ship. DeVries is a pretty pretty able when it comes to his seamanship. Uh, technically speaking, he's proficient. He knows what he's doing with the boat. And the men also respect him for that. Nonetheless, uh, as DeVries, uh, as DeVries exit the ship uh, and is replaced by Quig, who uh, Keith has a very different impression, actually, of Quig at the beginning. So it's a nice juxtaposition with DeVries because Keith starts out having a very negative opinion of DeVries. That changes over the course of the book. By contrast, he has a very favorable impression of Quig starting out. And then, of course, uh, as, as you'll see in quite a few of the episodes that we're, that we're about to detail here, uh, his opinion of Quig steadily declines. So Quig comes uh, aboard the ship with the idea of trying to fix the mess, essentially, at least in his opinion, that DeVries has left behind. He is a very meticulous, uh, by the book, uh, exceedingly demanding uh, individual. 
and seems to get really caught up in the formality of things. And at least at the beginning, the readers left the impression that this is the case because he's just trying to fix things. But as it goes on, we see a man who's obsessed uh, with details uh, to to a point uh, that uh, it almost starts some of the uh, gets some of the crew to thinking that perhaps the captain might not even be a mentally uh, stable. Um, there are a number of incidents that unfold, coming to really a crescendo with the, with the infamous uh, strawberry incident. And I don't want to I don't want to take that one away, Aaron, uh, from anyone <laughs> else to describe it because it's really delicious, a delicious uh, a moment in the book. Uh, but basically, what happens uh, is is the captain, who's fond of uh, who's fond of issuing a lot of rules that he then can't uh, can't live by, and so uh, he's he's really fond of ice cream and strawberries. They come, I forget at which port they're at, but they come into a couple of buckets of fresh strawberries, and after about his I forget what it was, his fourth or I think it was his fourth, fourth bowl. Right, his fourth or fifth bowl of ice cream. This is uh, around midnight or past midnight. And so uh, he he notifies down uh, to the kitchen staff that he'd like to have another bowl of ice cream with strawberries. And it turns out uh, that there – was it no strawberries left? Or they were just, all gone. They were all gone, right? So all the strawberries are gone. Uh, and Quig, uh, being, the, uh, being the pretty particular person that he is, by his calculations, he summons in all of the officers from the ship to go over how many bowls of ice cream they've each had, how many strawberries they would have had. And so uh, by his calculations, there should still be a couple of strawberries remaining. And then he then embarks on this pretty uh, remarkable quest to try and nail down who has stolen the strawberries. And this unravels uh, pretty dramatically uh, to include body cavity searches of the crew, uh, searching every last nook and cranny of the ship to see who it is because his theory is that someone has the key to the fridge where the strawberries uh, were being stored, and he's going to find the person uh, that has that key. And this is really the culminating moment where people see that uh, that perhaps the captain is not quite stable. Um, so I, what you really see, I guess, to, to close out this this comparison between the two with Quig and DeVries is that DeVries wasn't, wasn't by the book, um, but he got the job done and he had a good sense of who he was working with. On the other hand, uh, Quig uh, was incredibly particular about uh, Navy rules and regulations to a fault and was pretty incapable when it came to actually getting the mission accomplished. And so it leaves the it leaves the reader wondering, you know, what is is what's the proper style of leadership? Is it situation dependent? Uh, was DeVries right? Was he was he even though uh, he wasn't uh, living up to navy expectations when it came to rules and regs, uh, was he handling the situation correctly based on the circumstances that he'd been dealt? Uh, and does he show that there is not one leadership style uh, that fits fits the bill on every occasion, uh, and so that is that is clearly one of the one of the overriding themes of the book. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, so, Charlie, tell us a little bit about uh, some of Lieutenant Keith's peer coworkers on the ship. I know we have uh, several who make a pretty important dent in the uh, naval career of Lieutenant Keith. So tell us first a little bit about Lieutenant Merrick. 
Yeah, so Lieutenant Merrick is the exec on the on the ship, and he ends up playing a real uh, principal role as we get closer to the the uh, actual climax, where the of the mutiny and the ensuing court martial. He's actually the one who is uh, court martialed. He is the the accused at the uh, at the court martial. I think the theory, the legal theory, kind of being um, that he was. Uh, charged with mutiny and the others is effectively charged with an accessory to a mutiny and the prosecutorial decision was hey if we get this guy for mutiny then we can press with his accomplices but if he gets acquitted for mutiny then there there's, there's nothing, nothing to be an accessory there's nothing to. to be an accessory so he's a uh, he's another uh draftee you know he's They're not all a, reservists right he's another reservist except for his, Queeg. Who's, a, who's an academy man. He's which, an yes, academy grad. Which is interesting, although to salvage to salvage the academy here, uh, the author has the individual who relieves Queeg is also an academy grad. And, and he's very and, competent. And he's, and he's portrayed as <laughs> very, very competent here. So yeah. to for our academy grads out there, I don't think it's a I don't, I don't think it was intended as a as an absolute knock against academy grads. No, but uh but it is a um it is important what's Throughout the book, the contrast between regular Navy and these uh, reservists, which basically means, you know, they're just in the Navy for the war right now, right? They they just came in to help fight the war. Lots of them are professionals in some way. They're officer. They're, we're focusing mostly on the officers. So they are well-educated and they're smart in a lot of ways. But Merrick is a commercial fisherman, so his seamanship is excellent. He knows, you know, exactly what to do with the boat. Uh, that becomes, I guess, in debate at one particular point. But uh, but that's that's Merrick, and he is uh, in. He's sort of simple, and I don't I don't think the author means that, and I don't mean that in too much of a demeaning way. But he's a lot more. Um, of a rule follower, straightforward guy. He's not too worried about what he thinks about what a captain should say. Um, ironically, up to the actual mutiny itself, he's he's the one who is, of them all, the most consistent in not bashing the captain and not second-guessing the captain and trying, uh, not not too forcefully, but at least consistently trying to impose that kind of order among his fellow uh, lower-ranking officers. So if they're doing things, making fun of, singing songs about, disparaging songs about Captain Quig, he either walks away or says something kind of low-key like, knock it off, guys. Doesn't really ever follow up with that, but you can tell he chooses not to involve himself in that sort of, uh, I guess, that low-key insubordination. Yeah, he's really the embodiment of respect, respect the position, uh, not the man. And this is something that all of the characters come back to. You know, I, I spent a good uh, bit of time here, Charlie, bashing, bashing Quig a few <laughs> moments ago. And, and it is pretty, pretty evident throughout the book that he is not, uh, not a model military officer by any stretch of the imagination. No. However, what he does accomplish for the reader, though, and Merrick's the one who I think really brings this out, is to question whether or not it really should matter from a leadership standpoint. The idea here being that uh, the military uh, military factors in uh, that there are going to be not so great leaders uh, at various moments throughout your career, but that shouldn't lead to a breakdown of the system if you have followers who are doing what they're supposed to do. And that's that's Merrick, who uh, a number of times reproves uh, the rest of the officers for all their disparaging comments. 
about Quig and really up until the last tries, tries to hold out, uh, hold out hope for the system. Uh, and that's an interesting contrast there with, I think, the other character you're going to talk about, who, of course, is Kiefer, complete opposite end of the spectrum. From yeah, Mac. so so the opposite end of the spectrum and the sort of the devil on the other shoulder here is uh, is Kiefer, and uh, Kiefer is by trade, uh, or at least in his in his mind and his efforts, <laughs> he's a, he's a writer. So he spends all his spare time and and then some uh, writing uh, what he hopes will be the great American novel about World War II, uh, probably about his time on a ship in World War II. And he he scurries off all the time to be to to put his head down and write his novel. That's what that's what he's about. It's way more important to him than any of this stuff. And he ends up leading the charge against Quig in a rhetorical sense, in a in a real insidious kind of way uh, among the crew. He's he's kind of the the leader of these sarcastic comments and he's really, really quick to say what it you know, what he thinks um about the the Navy in general, the ship in particular, this captain in particular. He's not a very good follower at all. Uh he doesn't do any more than he's required. And he uh, he's real opinionated in a negative way about his leadership and drags others down with him to a real uh, detrimental degree. So the other interesting kind of contrast in this book, not just the reserves and the regular, but also the educated, the the more traditionally educated and the or classically educated and in the not right. The the fishermen or the military men, they're they're kind of framed as, you know, real Real simple kind of... Um, Almost like goobery. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're... So I was going to say, too, Kiefer has actually published a novel. So he's a published author. He thinks very highly of himself. And he's an Ivy graduate. And when Willie Keith first comes aboard, Kiefer takes to him right away because he's a Princeton graduate. And they're of a similar class and they're of a similar background. And I think that really does, there's this, and I think it's also important that all these guys are reservists because there really is a commentary, not being made by the author, but using Kiefer as the mechanism, there's a commentary on the more, I guess, blue-collar officers like Merrick and Quig and DeVries, people who have made this kind of um, work their careers, as opposed to these more, like, soft-hand, white-shoe waspy east coast ivy grads too good for the military they're too good for military right there's almost this sense that they've condescended to help the military win this war because um (laughs) it got in over its head right so uh, but that ends up playing um a lot of different roles but the but in particular when it comes to the relationship between merrick and kiefer essentially Kiefer drops some hints that uh, he's no psychologist, but some of the stuff he's been seeing from Captain Quig reminds him of some uh, diagnoses he's heard of in these books that he has read, and in particular, a paranoia. Um, so, so that gets Merrick uh, at first pretty much disregards it out of hand, but then things keep happening, like the strawberry incident and some others, and. And because I think partially because Merrick is so um, is so so straightforward is probably the best way to put it. He sees things from Quig that also uh, don't sit right with him. Right? There's a lack of integrity. There's a real focus on himself and his reputation and and how he's treated and the loyalty to him. And that doesn't sit right with Merrick either. 
even if he's not going to disparage him publicly. So he starts looking into this and making a log of these crazy incidents. And uh, ultimately, between him and the other officers, is convinced that that Quig is crazy, so, or at least mentally unfit to captain this ship. And so they they read in the regulation that there there is a there is a way for them to uh, take the ship from Quig. The the first part of that first step that they are supposed to do is to base, is to check with leadership, right? Hey, if you're problem if you got a problem with the captain, go to the admiral. Um, but there's a there's kind of a real telling incident where they finally get an opportunity to do that, and Kiefer bails, chickens out. Kiefer says, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this. This is suicide. I'm not gonna go tell the admiral that I have a problem with the captain. And Merrick says, well. I'm not going to be able to say everything that you would be able to say. I'm not equipped to have this conversation by myself. So, you know, I'm out of here, too. And uh, that kind of leads us to some of, some of the other stuff that we're going to talk about. Right. So uh, before we move on, I want to kind of finish up with the plot because I know we touched a little bit. Um, obviously, based on the name of the book, clearly there is a mutiny in this book. Um, I know I was personally, and being not a, a seaman myself, I was expecting something a little more dramatic and pirate-like, <laughs> uh, a little more Captain Jack Sparrow left on an island kind of situation. Um, but essentially what happens is the team is on the minesweeper and they are part of an escort. And while they're stopping to refuel, as they're heading off, it turns out, I think, to Midway, Right. Uh, there's a typhoon. And in the very tense chaotic moments when the ship is caught in the storm the kind of the culminating incident all of these incidents with captain Queeg, where he has been a less than stellar leader i think we can all agree the men in the um wheelhouse with him uh merrick and keith specifically determine that he is not guiding the ship that they would like it to be done and he does he has a little bit of a, of a flail where he uh, kind of seems like he's panicking and Merrick decides that the time has come. This is going to be a mutiny. And he's going to, he refers to the article, he says, it's 186, this is a mutiny, sir. I'm going to ask you to walk away. And the, you know, Stillwell, the guy at the wheel, you're going to start listening to me. Um, and from that moment, they survive the storm. Queeg is not, this is not dramatic. He's not hauled off in chains and ropes. They politely ask him to take a seat. And he sort of does that. And he, he remains there on the bridge. Yes, he mildly protests. Uh, he remains on the bridge. And it's, if anything, a fairly peaceable mutiny. Uh, and afterward, he uh, Merrick is court-martialed for the mutiny. Uh, like we talked about before, um, Keith and Stilwell are also had per charges preferred against them. But um, it all really depends on Merrick, uh, who is eventually acquitted with a very interesting defense by a reservist jag who in real life is uh, a pretty hotshot attorney from New York. Um, Another example of reservists uh, stepping in to save the day. Yes. See that motif. Right. Yeah, yeah well-educated well right. attorney, pilot. <laughs> yes. Although I would say the real complete contrast um, to Kiefer in that he has used his intelligence in a way that he wants to serve his country and he looks down on Kiefer and these other guys. He gets he gets Merrick off, but he doesn't think that that's really the right call. He thinks that Merrick is guilty, which is very interesting. And also, I think we could have a whole discussion about being a defense attorney uh, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, but to kind of keep us 
moving along, I thought the first thing we could talk about would be the theme of leadership, uh, specifically looking at the executive level for the command, the captain here, uh, Captain Quig, and then talking a little bit about peer leadership with Merrick and Kiefer and Key and sort of how those themes play out in the book. So, sir, do you want to start by walking us a little bit through DeVries and Quig? Yeah, sure. So... So uh, let's go ahead and uh, and take Quig first because I think he's the he's the easier uh, easier of the two to to diagnose. Uh, so Quig seems to to fall short in every aspect uh, of leadership that you might uh, put under the leadership umbrella. He's not technically proficient. He has a really hard time. So he doesn't know his actual profession very well. He has a hard time handling the ship. There are a couple instances uh, of that in the book where he winds up crashing into the docks because he can't can't quite uh, manage the engines properly when they're moving in, um, moving into the docking area. Uh, winds up cutting uh, a cord that connects that connects the ship to a target when they were out towing targets uh, because he's because he happens to be uh, at that time in the middle of of chewing out uh, one of the sailors uh, for something. Um, so he's technically not very good at his job. So there's one strike uh, against them. So I think p- part of what's going on here is an examination of well, to what to be a good leader in the military, uh, how proficient do you have to be at your particular line of work? And it's a good question because uh, as as we know here in the JAG Corps, the higher you go in leadership, the less you're actually performing your job function, the less legal work you're going to do. And of course, you you know, you could say this for, for most of the AFSCs, whether you're a pilot, whether you're a doctor, engineer, et cetera, you're going to be managing people more and performing your job less. So that's one of the questions uh, that gets raised here. Um, another question, aside from technical proficiency, is uh, how you how you deal with your people and the extent to which you have to model behavior in order to get other people to follow along. And so the story presents us with a number of examples of Quig not being able to live by the rules that he wants everyone else to so meticulously follow, probably one of the more... Uh, illustrative moments uh, is when he's trying to get uh, some liquor that they had picked up. I think it was at Pearl Harbor because it's not available back in the States. Uh, and he winds up charging a number of his subordinates to get the this case of liquor off the ship uh, and onto the boat when they're about to have uh, shore leave. Uh, he puts that obligation on a number of other people after having already disciplined uh, individuals many times for not uh, following rules of, of arguably uh, far less import. The whole thing winds up getting botched, and poor Willie Keith gets stuck with the bill for the liquor that winds up going to the bottom, uh, to going to the bottom of the bay. And Willie Keith winds up paying this just so that he can preserve the leave yes. that he'd been planning. He to gets take. extorted. He gets extorted by his commander. Him. Yeah, right. He says, "Oh, it's you know too bad. Somebody's going to have to stay aboard ship." Now that, you know, this liquor has gone overboard, it's going to be a lot of paperwork, you know, if, unless I got reimbursed. <laughs> you know. I mean, pretty, pretty much a worst case scenario when it comes to ethics violations, ethics, ethics co- uh, coercion, et cetera. So there's that. And then there's just the simple, uh, simple ab- ability to know who you're working with, you know, who, who are your people and how well do you know them? And not that, not that DeVries was necessarily chummy with the crew, but he certainly had his, he certainly had his sense 
of who was working for him and what he could expect from them uh, in terms of their uh, professionalism uh, and in terms of their competency. And Quig really treats absolutely everyone the same in this regard and that he expects a meticulous perfection from all of them without any variance. Yes, sir. And I think a telling moment is uh, in the handoff when DeVries is leaving the ship and Quig comes to take command. DeVries sits down with Quig in his office to say, okay, and he, and he starts walking through the officers and giving his opinion about their leadership and their um, competence. And, he, you know, he says, oh, you know, Kiefer is a pretty good guy. Yeah, he's working on his book, but he gets the job done. You know, Merrick is a, he's got a head on his shoulders. I, this guy, Willie Keith, like he's a little bit of a, a knock around, but like I think he'll, I think he'll shape up with a little bit of discipline. And Quig has zero interest in hearing any of this. He doesn't want the opinions of DeVries. He's not thinking about the guys working for him. He's pretty much just like, give me the keys and get off my ship. Yeah, you, you actually raised a great point there uh, that, that winds up coming full circle because it was DeVries who predicted that Willie Keith, and uh, so given, given that we have all sorts of other spoilers in our discussion here, so Willie yes. Keith winds up being the last captain of the ship. Ironically, which, I yeah, guess. Which, yeah. as you see him at the beginning of the book, that's really just unimaginable. It was certainly unimaginable to Quig, uh, but DeVries could see that yeah. uh, in him and made and made that prediction. So again, when it comes to being able to judge your people and appreciate their qualities, appreciate their, their character strengths and their defects, uh, DeVries was definitely someone who had a far far greater sense of, of, of judging character. So in terms of what, what I've covered so far, uh, we talked about technical proficiency. We talked about understanding your people. We talked about modeling the behavior you, you expect everyone else to follow. And then finally, uh, indispensable, particularly here uh, in a wartime setting, uh, courage. Um, well, we don't really see any examples uh, – to the point that the plot had developed anyway with DeVries. We certainly do see an example uh, of Quig lacking it. In fact, it's pretty, the, the, the story makes pretty clear that Quig has a courage problem. Yes. Uh, and you arguably could, could call him a coward, and probably the best illustration of it is when they were having to escort some Marines uh, to an island that was being taken. And uh, as they're, they're making this zigzag approach to the shoreline, and a number of people in the crew notice that every time that the boat shifts position, uh, Quig moves from the side of the ship that would be facing the battery fire from the shore over to the covered side of the ship, and that he does this uh, repeatedly. So obviously not not very inspiring uh, for the for the sailors on the ship, and something that a number of people comment uh, comment upon. Also, the yellow stain incident which uh, they're escorting another ship to the shore, and they're kind of the scouting ship, and they're supposed to drop a marker at the point where it becomes too shallow for the ship to keep going because they're smaller. Uh, so they're getting closer and closer to the island, and the ship that's with them starts taking fire. And Willie Keith is the officer on duty, and he and the gunman, you know, they, they get their weapons ranged, and he says, sir, you know, we are in range. We can fire when ready. And Quig says, well, hold your fire. And Willie Keith's like, what? Right. <laughs> and, you know, the gunman, you can just send everybody on the ship, like, turns and looks. They're like, what? And he says, turn around. <laughs> Let's leave. Let's leave. So they drop the yellow marker where they're at, which is not where they're supposed to be, and they, like, beat feet out of there instead of helping cover the ship that's with them. Like, they're buddies are getting fired on and instead of they can take out the shooter 
from the position they're in, but Queek has them turn around, and he drops that yellow marker, and they start calling it the yellow stain. Yeah, he wins the moniker Old Yellow Stain. Old Yellow from Stain. That point forward. So again, not not only is there the immediate consequence uh, of deserting uh, the other individuals who they were escorting, but then on top of that, it's really a blight on his character that tanks his reputation, uh, which is already pretty blemished at that stage, but uh, further further degrades his reputation with the crew and then makes followership from them all the more of a challenge. Yes. So, and again, as we know, you know, leadership at this point on the ship is deteriorating constantly under Queeg. Uh, but as all we all know, uh, there's leadership at multiple levels and there's also peer leadership. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about Merrick and Kiefer and Keith, who are the three primary lieutenants here they're uh you know merrick is the exo and then kiefer and keith are in alternate positions they're sort of constantly being the officer on duty they're kind of the, the highest ranking other two officers on board there are a couple of ensigns also but they're uh they're not really mentioned as often they they kind of cycle in and out and this is like kind of the core crew who's been on the cane the longest at this point to look at the the peer leadership, you know, Charlie mentioned earlier that Kiefer is really the one who ends up planting the seed of the mutiny. He doesn't, he never actually comes out and says that anybody should do anything, but he is so definitive in the way he speaks and he's so um, persuasive that Merrick, who is, even though he himself seems to have a lot of intelligence, he's very swayed by the education and what he, I think, thinks of as the superiority of Kiefer yes. to buy into this idea. And some infectious cynicism, I would say, too. Yes. Really is what seems to kind of Which is a bit of irony without taking any more of your thunder that Kiefer ends up being the most persuasive, who meaning he could exert the best leadership on the boat, yes. but in the, he ends up using his powers for evil instead of good. He, he really does um, because, you know, we have such a lack of trust in Queeg at, uh, you know, toward this point of the book, we have seen so many incidents that have really, you know, just really deteriorated the way that the entire crew thinks about him. There's one point where they go on shore leave and it says that 25 people don't show up and would rather take the court martial than sail with Queeg again. Pretty pretty definitive yeah explanation of just how how bad morale had sunk right so at this point i think i think we can all agree that peer leadership is probably more important than ever uh and kiefer really has he has no real personal responsibility for the things that he's saying and the outcome here uh so he plants this seed in merrick's mind that quig has like a paranoia disorder that he's a narcissist um and that Something must be done, but not by me. And then Merrick, again, he is sort of torn between his loyalty to Queeg and this kind of pure loyalty, I think. Because, yes, he will walk away when the others are making fun of Queeg, but he doesn't really stand up to them. He doesn't really assert any true order or discipline over them. And I think because I think secretly Merrick thinks that Kiefer and Keith are better than him. I think because of that class and education disparity, I don't know if it's that he necessarily believes that in the front of his mind or if that's influencing him or if he thinks that Kiefer's maybe too hard to go up against in a lot of respects because 
all the other officers are listening to him. And, you know, there's an incident where one of the ill-fated enlisted sailors who just, Quig just hates him. It's not totally clear why. I mean, he's, he seems to be very sharp and good looking and maybe that's it. But Quig has really taken it out for uh, this guy Stillwell and he denies Stillwell the ability to go on shore leave with everybody else after they've been on the Minesweeper for months. And Stillwell has his brother send a fake telegram that their mother is ill. We, and, well, it's never actually proven. Right. He's trumped up court martial. That's, that's right. It's, uh, it's the evidence is that he had his brother send this telegram. Uh, and Keith talks Merrick into letting Stillwell leave, even though they know that this is probably not true. And, you know, Merrick has a lot of these moments where he's torn between the loyalty to the captain and then his relationship with his peers. And I think that's, I mean, that's ultimately what gets them to the point that there's a mutiny is he's very influenced by Kiefer and I do think the biggest piece of this though is Lieutenant Keith our main character Willie Keith he is not really the main mechanism driving most of this stuff and he's you know he's our main character he's our our main lens and he's a fairly unreliable narrator, I would say, because everything is very colored by his perception of the people around him and what's going on. Typically reacting yes. to, to everyone else, which 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 in part makes sense because he was he was subordinate uh, to both Merrick uh, as the exec and to Kiefer at yes. that point. And I think he's also pretty. I think he is impressed by Merrick's officership and his seamanship, and he is generally speaking. In kind of from his background and his upbringing, he's very impressed by Kiefer, and he wants to impress Kiefer, even though, as it turns out, he sort of slowly discovers along the way that Kiefer talks a big talk about how, you know, the Navy is a genius designed to be run by idiots and, you know, that any monkey could do the job. It turns out Kiefer himself was not actually doing the job, and Willie has to do a lot of cleanup for Kiefer because it turns out most of Kiefer's duty has been spent writing his novel Multitudes, Multitudes. He was supposed to be decoding messages. Yes. Uh, and in fact, just let them piling up. You know, I was just, as, as I was listening to you talk about that, Aaron, I thought that, no, you know, not only did Kiefer put in motion this this mutiny mindset, if you will, uh, and but then he wasn't actually there at the moment that the decision, the incredibly difficult decision had to be made by Merrick, who wasn't accomplished, uh, semen as to whether or not he needed to switch. So the, the pretty dramatic moment in the book as the ship looks like it's about uh, to capsize uh, in the midst of uh, this raging typhoon. Merrick says, drive the ship into the storm. Quig says, no, uh, position the ship to move away from the storm. Uh, Kiefer's nowhere to be found uh, on deck at that moment. And then also in the aftermath of everything, uh, at the court-martial, also really fails to back up Merrick, uh, who's, on, who's on trial at this stage, uh, and doesn't really provide him the, the testimony that accurately reflects what Kiefer had been advocating for all along. And again, uh, to add another uh, episode to that, Kiefer later on, sort of in an epilogue, there, there's, a, there's a fire on the ship, and Kiefer's one of the first people who jumps overboard um, thinking that uh, it were sunk. And then 
And Ke- Willie Keith was like, well, no, maybe we can save it. Runs in there, helps put out the fire, realizes the ship is sound, and uh, and end up helping Kiefer back on board. <laughs> and, and, and Kiefer really, it's at that stage of the book that it seems like he has his first moment of self-reflection. Yes. Uh, to, rec- to, to, think, to really think back, uh, because this is, post, this is post-court-martial. Uh, right. Merrick's already uh, been acquitted. Uh, and this is the first opportunity that Kiefer really thinks about how he's conducted himself throughout the book. And now comes to think that after all of these accusations uh, of Quig being a coward, uh, perhaps uh, he's one too. Yeah, he even says command is the loneliest, most oppressive job in the world. Because he is at the point that this happens. He's the captain now of the cane. And he says, I've never understood Quig better than I do now that I'm the captain of the ship. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And really that moment where he jumps overboard, I think becomes defining for Kiefer because he tells Willie, he's like, I'm gonna have to live with the fact that I jumped and you didn't for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I think that this that this moment, Aaron, really reveals the genius uh, of the author here. Yeah. Because for this entire novel as a reader, uh, you are pretty convinced that Quig is an awful commander, awful sailor, awful person, uh, and that he really just has no business being uh, in in command of this ship. Uh, but then once this incident happens with Kiefer and Kiefer starts to reflect on how it is that he's conducted himself, you really start to wonder, notwithstanding all of Quig's failings, did the crew fail him in their loyalty and in their followership. Right. Um, I think, too, uh, an important peer leadership moment, I think, is the actual point of the mutiny. When, yes, Merrick is the one who's on trial as the main actor, the one who literally took command in the moment, but I think the person who actually decides there's going to be a mutiny is Willie Keith. Uh, Everybody in that room, including Queeg, turns and looks at him. And Stillwell, who's being, he's driving the ship in that moment, right? It's this particular cast of characters. It's Merrick and Keith and Stillwell, Stillwell who hates Queeg. Uh, but in that moment, Merrick says, do this. Queeg says, don't do that, do this. And Stillwell turns and he looks at Willie and he says, Mr. Keith, what do I do? And Willie Keith, in his trust of, I think it's a simultaneous trust of fear for his life, trust of Merrick's seamanship, and hatred of Queeg. And that's probably the biggest piece of all. Which he admits. Which yeah, he admits. Later on. Later on. He later on admits. Um, he says, still well listen to Merrick. Mr. Merrick is in charge of the ship now. Right? He's the captain now. This is also a remarkable turn of events because we now have Willie Keith, who no one's really been relying on for anything. No, nothing. Up to, up to this stage. And and he's the one that makes the pivotal decision. He does. And he, it's funny because I think it tells you a lot about Willie Keith as a character that later on he says that he was impaled by terrible accident on the spike of military justice. And not only that's the, the, the flavor of drama of sort of his internal thoughts, but also um, it was not really a terrible accident that got him to the point that he had charges preferred against him, right? He made an active decision to participate and aid and abet the mutiny. But there's a real, you know, for him, even still right up to leading up to the court-martial, even though he's developed a lot in maturity as a character, he still has a lack of personal responsibility uh, in that moment. And it's not until the party 
post-court-martial that is not actually to celebrate the acquittal. <laughs> a great point. But instead, yes, instead it is actually a celebration of the fact that Kiefer has published his book, Multitudes, Multitudes, and he throws himself a congratulatory publication party and invites the others and says, oh, I guess it'll be a double celebration. And like Merrick's <laughs> parents are there. Which makes for a really awkward party. Yes. And everyone is enjoying their champagne and getting... Uh, drunk and happy and the attorney defense attorney greenwald shows up and he's a little bit in his cups as well and he basically i think summarizes the whole tension of the book because up until this point you're seeing everything through the lens of willie keith and these other lieutenants you're on their side you're excited and happy that merrick is acquitted only to sort of be told off by greenwald who says hey listen you guys should not have won this. I won this for you because I'm a great attorney, not because you guys were innocent. And he specifically says to Kiefer, you were the most responsible person in there. You were the one who should have been up there on trial. And he throws his drink in Kiefer's face. And I think that kind of, that brings us to our next topic, which is talking about military culture and the system, because we are led to believe, I think, by the choice of Willie Keith as the protagonist and his experiences, you're led to think a certain way about Quig, about military leadership, and about the way their ship is being run, and the court-martial and the testimony of the court-martial and the party afterward and Greenwald's speech at the party afterward really, I think, is where Walk kind of one gives you the one-two because you realize that actually you haven't been thinking about this the right way. You let yourself get caught up in the narrative given to you by these lieutenants, and you've lost sight of the bigger picture of the war and what the Navy is doing here. Yeah, excellent, uh, excellent lead in there, Aaron. Uh, so, uh, and you you made the comment earlier before, and it's probably one of the most famous passages from this book. It's toward the beginning. Uh, the quote is that the, the Navy is a system designed by geniuses for execution by idiots. And to all of our uh, to all of our Navy brethren out there, I think you could universalize that comment. This happens to be a happens to be a book about the Navy, but you, you could say it for the military in general. Um, and there are a n- number theater of the, theater of the absurd. So there are just a number of incidents throughout the book. Uh, in particular, I think, abetted by Kiefer's uh, cynicism. He's pretty poisonous cynicism, where you just wonder as to what in the world is going on with this with this military culture, um, with the assignment system. Here's something that we can certainly all identify with, even at right from the get-go at the beginning of the book, uh, when Willie Keith uh, is about to finish his time at OTS, and they're all speculating over how the assignments process is actually decided. And so you have one person saying, well, you list on your dream sheet, you list the first position uh, that you want because you want to be honest with them and tell them exactly what it is you want to do. And then that's countered by other people who say, no, 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 don't do that. You don't want to because then then they'll give you the opposite of what you ask for. So you want to put down what you least want as your first choice so that you can so that you can be a of getting something that you that you truly want, um, and this, this is something, of course, that to this day uh, we can we can all we can all yes. identify with and wonder about uh, from the beginning. And so, incident after incident, as it's compounded in the book, just as you just as you scoff along with the crew uh, at Queeg, you also scoff at the system itself. But then, of course, in those moments toward the end. Uh, at the court-martial, 
uh, and with and with Kiefer's jump off the ship and the pretty remarkable turnaround by the end of the book that you see in Willie Keith, who comes on the ship utterly incapable uh, of being really able to assess a person or to technically the, direct the ship properly in any situation, and yet he finishes off as the last captain uh, of the Kane, leading it from Okinawa back to Hawaii and Pearl Harbor, and then through the Panama Canal all the way back to the East Coast uh, to Bayonne, be commissioned. Yeah, this this system, this system that we've that we've heard derided by the characters for the entire novel is the one that winds up completely. I mean, bringing this is something that you're going to talk about here in a moment, Aaron, bringing uh, Willie Keith into manhood. Uh, as it were, and develops him as a military leader. And so just as by the end of the book, you start to question whether you were right about Quig, you also start to question whether you were right about the system and, and whether it really is something that's designed to, to accomplish the mission and capably accomplish the mission. And of course, you know, the crowning irony of it all is that as the book, the book ends with the cane being decommissioned and the United States has just declared victory in World War II. So this system that we've scoffed at from the entire book is the system that won the war at right. the same time. And I think, too, the court-martial is a really telling moment because you know, we start getting all this testimony from all these expert witnesses talking about naval rules and regulations. It turns out that Quig actually probably made a pretty safe decision when he was ordering Stillwell to not turn into the storm and that the way that Merrick did it was actually riskier. So we're led to believe that Quig is pretty incompetent, and it turned out that by the book, that's what the Navy teaches, and he had gone to the academy, and he was a naval guy. And maybe by experience, you know, Merrick had an idea of what, what should happen, but that Quig was actually doing things the way that the Navy felt it should be done. And I think the big message of the whole thing, right, the way the prosecutor and later on the defense attorney talked to these lieutenants is, you three idiots think you know better than the Navy, right? The Navy chose this guy to be the captain of this ship. It's a war. Is he the most ideal guy? No. But it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. You know, we set this system in motion. You guys are reservists. You're coming in. This is a, you know, a career naval officer. And this is a decision made by the Navy, and we know better than you. And everyone can't just suddenly decide that they know better than the Navy. Right. And that seems to be the point. Uh, everyone thinks that they can be the better captain until they become the captain. Until they become the captain. So in the end, the system uh, is at least partially vindicated. I mean, I don't I don't think that it that, that it completely cleans it up no. because quite a few of the of the foibles and missteps that we see all throughout the novel starting with that uh, mysterious assignments process uh, that I was just talking about. Uh, you're always left always left to wonder about how things were designed and why they were designed in that way. Uh, but without question, you do come away with this realizing that perhaps there's a bit more to this system than initially meets the eye. Well, I think one of the one of the real uh, beauties of the defense at the court martial is that it plays on the uh, the panel's faith in the Navy because they're presented with these facts and they basically are given this 
this choice. Either he's a coward and the Navy got it wrong, or he was crazy enough for this mutiny to be justified. And God love him, Barney Greenwald gets in there, and the way he puts it is he did everything but sing anchors away at that jury. And in in terms of propping up and, you know, kind of uh, really bolstering that faith in the Navy because— because they can't sit there and believe that Captain Quig was a coward, right? That's the only alternative, essentially, is what he tells them. The alternative is, he's a coward and the Navy got it wrong. Is that really what you want to believe? And they end up acquitting, essentially communicating that, okay, well, I guess they saw enough uh, for him to for this to not have been you know, not have been illegal. They must acquit the Navy more than they acquit right. America. <laughs> right, and I mean that's a fascinating twist, Charlie, that I hadn't even uh, even thought of because in in acquitting in acquitting Merrick, they're saying, well, the system was a bit fouled up, and yet by doing that, that's in a sense the ultimate vindication right. of, the, of the system. <laughs> right. right? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, we recognize this guy was a pretty horrible captain. You made a really difficult decision. Uh, at that particular time. Yeah. I think that, I won't belabor this, but that goes back, uh, in in my mind, it could be uh, something you could see in Merrick throughout the way, is I've got to choose, when I see this guy do crazy things, uh, it doesn't compute. Like, the, he's got a lot of, Merrick himself has a lot of integrity, and he sees this lack of integrity in Quig, and it can and I, either be just cowardice or or some sort of clinical diagnosis, and uh, and he ends up going with, okay, this guy's crazy enough for me to take over, especially in that moment where he's standing there just clutching a piece of machinery on the bridge and not making um, any commands or sounds uh, in the middle of a typhoon. Yeah, Queeg Queeg totally freezes up, and and the audience should also know. I mean, we're, we're of course, in the limited time we have here leaving out a multitude uh, of of incidents that that reveal Queeg to be not so stable and probably... Uh, in fact, it's right on this edition. Uh, this I think this is the most recent uh, paperback edition from the early 2000s. Uh, throughout the book, uh, Captain Quig has these steel ball bearings uh, that he constantly rolls about in his hands, um, and it seems to be kind of one of his one of his crutches, uh, something that he does pretty regularly. And Greenwald, uh, on on cross examination of Quig, is able to get him to actually bring out the steel balls and start rotating them in his hands to give the jury an unmistakable visual of what the entire crew had been seeing for all this time. Uh, and of course, I think there's some really uh, powerful symbolism that's there uh, with those two steel ball bearings something, as well. Something, something, so, fortitude. Y- yeah, abs- <laughs> yeah abs- absolutely. Uh, and that's on the front cover of this. Uh, it shows uh, Captain Quig with... Uh, with his back to us and the two ball bearings in his hands. Yeah, and the, the, real quickly to kind of tag onto that, the other theme of the color yellow and throughout the book of, you know, kind of meaning cowardice, the yellow, yes, nice the yellow stain. I mean, the, it's a little bit on the nose when I sing a song about how cowardly he is and, and, and call him old yellow stain. But then at the end, the attorney really just lambastes everybody there and says, you're guilty of mutiny, but I got you off because you weren't the one who should have been on trial. Kiefer should have been on trial. And so he throws this glass of yellow wine into oh, that's right. into oh, Kiefer's. Yeah, nice one, Charlie. Oh, how uh, English lit of you. So then it's it's it splashes on Kiefer's face, and the author makes a point of saying, and some of it splashed over onto Keith. And I was like, yeah, that's that's unmistakable. He anyway, 
he, that's that's a little meta for our discussion. Yeah, no, but Shira shows you the artistry of uh, of Herman Walk, though. Yeah. Right. So to wrap it up a little bit, we'll end where we started with Willie Keith, our protagonist. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but a lot of this book is really about his personal journey and his maturation during the time that he's in the Navy, which I think is about two years, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So Willie Keith, again, he starts out, he is this piano player living on his parents' dollar. You know, he dodges the draft by going into the Naval OTS. And then while he is stationed awaiting uh, the cane to come back to port over in Pearl Harbor, he tries to get himself an assignment of shore leave, essentially hanging out with an, a local admiral playing the piano for him, uh, which kind of tells you everything that you need to know about the Willie Keith of the beginning of the book. But by the end of the book, so slowly over the book, you see his maturity. Not only does he become a better, a more able naval officer, he seems to be much more confident. He is more competent. You know, he starts learning different tools. He gets Merrick to teach him how to do charting. And he, you know, learns a lot of proficiency at the job itself, but he also seems to develop more leadership skills. As time goes on, he seems to mature a little bit more as a person. I mentioned a little bit earlier his ill-fated, potentially ill-fated romance with Mae Wynn, who is a local New York City girl that he meets at the piano bar where he works. And his relationship with her also really reflects his maturity. He doesn't want to break up with her. He thinks that like just being on you know, on the ship for a few months, well, she'll forget about him. It's, you know, easier than breaking up with her. He doesn't want to take any responsibility for leading her on. But then, of course, every time he comes home for shore leave, he hooks back up with her. He eventually proposes to her. And then uh, he takes off again before they really resolve any of that. And then by the end of the book, when he very uh, symbolically brings home to Bayonne, New Jersey, the cane as the captain, right? He's really, his journey has really come full circle where he left a mama's boy from Connecticut, he returns a, a naval hero. Although with a, picked up by his mom, though. Picked up yeah, by his mom. <laughs> which is also, also coming full circle. I think really the, 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 in addition to the mutiny, I think the key moment for Willie Keith and his development in this book is the incident with the fire on the, the deck. Essentially, the cane is hit by a kamikaze pilot. It bursts a big hole into the ship. It starts a huge fire. The captain at the time, Kiefer, jumps overboard with his novel in a waterproof bag. Uh, and Keith is actually the one who stays aboard. He gets the, the uh, sailors to put out the fire, and he actually kind of throws himself right into the fray right. immediately. And he has this moment of true—it's really kind of uh, true kind of pin pinnacle of leadership too. He's the one directing all the efforts at the time, pretty does, and, and pretty yeah. seamlessly. It's—I mean—it's a really awesome moment for him in the book where you really think like, okay, this guy's going to be all right. Yes, right. This guy's okay. Um, and I think he gets a—he gets a bronze star. If I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so, you know, he leaves this kind of, you know, this twerp and he comes, he victoriously rides the rust bucket cane that could barely make it back to Bayonne into the New York Harbor with his bronze star. And, you know, he kind of, his journey is symbolically over, but also physically over at this point. And, you know, and he's back in New York and he's back to his old life. And now he's got his post-Navy life to look at, but he is definitely... A different man than when he left. Yeah, he, he definitely the, the the military career aspect ends on a note of uh, note of triumph for him. Uh, and Aaron was just bringing up that relationship with uh, with Marie Minotti, or her stage name was was May Win. We've really uh, ju just again in the limited time that we have here had to had to unfortunately not really do justice uh, to that relationship, which is a pr pretty large portion of the book, but but also serves to show uh, his 
maturation uh, over the course of the the years that he's on the ship. And I'll, uh, I'll 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 end on that note actually because you know that that relationship is really kind of a, a tribute to to how this book manages to cover everything in my mind. I mean, it's part love story, it's part. Uh, treatise on leadership, and it's part historical novel on the Navy's uh, war in the Pacific in World War II, and and a pretty interesting chronicle of day-to-day life uh, on this ship. It's eminently readable, uh, a real page-turner. I really can't can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. One of the best ways you can support this publication is by following or subscribing the show and leaving us a rating. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil podcasts. We welcome your feedback. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guests and hosts. (laughs) 